not good weather night, but it's really good to have you all. I'm just going to read from Revelation chapter 1 just to give us a start. I'll start at verse 1, good place. And we read in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who was, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's just come in prayer. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge, as we must always do, that we need the help of the Holy Spirit, that we need the help of the seven spirits who sit before the throne. That symbol of the Spirit, we need your Holy Spirit to open your word and apply it to us tonight. So be with us, make yourself known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I first became a Christian, uh, I went to Keswick for the convention week with a big group, there were over 50, from my home church, South Beach Baptist Church of Salkers, all young people. And one day there was a, a sizable group of young men sitting around in our, our caravan, and for once the, the discussion took a serious turn. The book of Revelation, the end times, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, at last we got there. Were you pre-millennial, post-millennial? Were you an out-and-out out dispensationalist? Or were you a-millennial? Now don't worry if uh, you don't understand at the moment those terms. We'll, we'll touch on most of them over the coming weeks. But for now, let's just say that the millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth that is set out in Revelation 20. And the big debate is focused on the question of whether this thousand-year reign is pre, that is before Christ's second coming, post, after Christ's second coming, or if this is to be understood in some other, perhaps more symbolic way. Now, this is a big, big issue in some parts of the church and among some Christians, a huge issue. For instance, uh, in some parts of the states, particularly churches and denominations, 
have split, broken fellowship over this. Well, you know, the discussion began to get quite heated in that caravan lounge. I'm not convinced that anybody really knew what they were talking about, but when in Scotland have we ever let that get in the way of a good argument? <laughs> Ignorance never stops us. Then in the midst of this discussion, one of our youth leaders piped up and he said, actually, I'm pan-millennial. There was a moment of silence among us. What was this hitherto unheard of theory? Then he clarified it. I'm pan-millennial. I believe it will all pan out all right in the end. <laughs> I've since found that, you know, he wasn't the first person to say that by far. And it was a joke, but you know, over the years, I've actually become convinced that it's actually the best fallback position to have regarding the revelation of Jesus Christ and all its various questions. For among Christians, there are different understandings of, different approaches to the interpretation of revelation. Now, what I'm going to share with you over the coming weeks and months probably is the understanding that I have come to. And while I would never claim to be right in every detail, it would take an arrogant person to believe that. Yet the, the general detail of what I'm going to share with you is what I believe at this point in time. I'm open to being convinced otherwise. It'll be difficult to, but I am open. But this is where I stand right now. But you know, ultimately, I think everyone has got to have a bit of humility and as long as we believe in what really matters in the second coming of Jesus. That's what matters. That's what's non-negotiable. And I would say, let's all be generous to one another. Knowing that it's God alone who knows all things and that he will ultimately do what he will do. And that ultimately, it will all pan out all right in the end. Now that we introduction to this series on Revelation could be very briefly summarised. This is now what I believe. You won't all agree with me, but please have mercy. There you are. But what I want us to do now, in just this first little introductory look at Revelation, is paint in a, a bit of a background that will enable us to understand, that will give us a setting to just fit into the various sections and emphases of, of Revelation as we move through this book. So let's begin by thinking of its nature. Its nature. And that is that Revelation belongs to a class, to a type of literature that's generally known as apocalyptic. That is literature that's to do with the end times, to do with the apocalypse, that time when God would, God will act in judgment and establish a new age of righteousness on the earth. Now, the main period largely when this apocalyptic writing was written was from around 200 BC to the New Testament times and a little bit beyond. In the main then, in the time between the New Testaments, that's when, it, between the two Testaments, sorry, that's when it was written. And this, you see, was a, a dark time in Israel's history. This is a time when God's people were suffering, when injustice, largely meted out by the Roman Empire, ran rampant among them. And yet, at the same time, 
when God seemed to be silent and indifferent, when his voice via his instruments, the prophet, was no longer to be heard. It was into this vacuum that the apocalyptic writers spoke. And what they did was by heavy use of, of symbolism, by using and sometimes combining Old Testament prophecies that had been previously given, they used these to try to bring comfort, to inspire faith, hope, and courage among God's people. That in the darkness of this coming age, that soon they would break in the future, final, end-time victory of their God. Now, our book, our New Testament book, this book of Revelation, shares many similarities with those Jewish apocalyptic documents. But there are also some very significant differences as well. For while Revelation was written again at a time when evil and injustice continued to run wild, and a time when God's new people, his church, were just about to enter an unparalleled period of injustice and suffering and persecution, yet far from this being a period when God is silent, he now speaks. He speaks through his apostles and prophets in an unprecedented way. And the Jewish writers... They usually often wrote under false names. They tried to hide their own identity and to claim the identity and the implied authority of faith heroes of the past. But you see, John here, he does no such thing. He states his identity unambiguously because he knows that he has the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that that authority counts among the people of God. But the biggest difference between Revelation and the Jewish apocalyptic writings is this. This is the biggest difference. And here let me just quote directly from Paul Barnett, who's written a brief, relatively simple, but still excellent commentary. I think it's called Revelation, Apocalypse, Now and Then. But this is what he says. He says... Other examples of apocalyptic leave everything to the end. Only then will God triumph over evil. In John's book, however, Christ has already triumphed and his followers already enter into his triumph. Likewise, his great enemies, the dragon, the beast and the false prophet are already in principle defeated. In John's book, God's last judgment is not in the future, but in the past, in the historical death and resurrection of Christ. Now, just to add and clarify a couple of points here. First, when Paul Barnett says that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, who together symbolize the powers of evil, when he says that they already are in principle defeated. Well, what that means, I believe, is that they are defeated in the sense that their dominating power is broken. In the sense that they no longer have control over the people of God. But the final consummation of that victory, though, is still to come. At the second coming of Jesus. As God now gives us the opportunity to respond to his gospel 
and let evil runs its course in order to reveal its true ugliness. That victory finally is to come. Also when he says that God's last judgment is not in the future but in the past in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. Well I believe that's right in the sense that the basis for judgment in Christ was decided by God in the past in that death and resurrection. And God in eternity knows all the different details of that judgment. However, in terms of that judgment being made known to us in time then there is, from our perspective, there is a future dimension to the last judgment. That's not the nature, though, of the book of Revelation. It shares many similarities with Jewish apocalyptic writings that were well known at this time, that made heavy use of, of symbolism. But there are also vital, significant differences between the two what I want to move on to look at is its symbolism. That is the particular symbolism that we find in Revelation that scares many people off, but that I believe if we approach it properly and understand it properly, can actually begin to open this book up for us. First of all, in the fact that much of the symbolism that's used in Revelation was actually used in the other literature of that period and earlier, and was widely understood at the time and with the result being that historians and, and different other scholars they could give us I think pretty reliable insights into what these symbols mean so for instance with numbers seven symbolizes God and perfection eternal perfection and appropriately then three and a half when it's used in relation to years or when instead it speaks of 42 months that means a period in human history, a period that will end unlike God's eternity. Six, one less than seven. That relates to Satan's false claim to divinity, to God-like status. Twelve ties in with the leaders of the people of God relating to the twelve tribes of Israel. Twenty-four refers to the leaders from both the Old Testament and New Testament. One thousand symbolizes a great number or a very long period which is relevant of course in terms of the millennium and 144,000 symbolizes all all of the saved and redeemed people of God then we've got various creatures and beings for example the sea beast and the harlot which in the context in which Revelation was written most likely refers to the Roman emperor and to his government. Those who, remember, ruled from across the sea. The sea beast. With the land beast, by extension, being the Roman provincial governors. That is, those who were situated in the land, on the land, and who ruled there in the land on Rome's behalf. Then there are a number of characteristics that are symbolised in a whole variety of ways. For example, the lion equals nobility. The ox equals strength. The eagle equals speed. Man equates to wisdom. The lamb equates to helplessness. The horn to power. The eye equates to knowledge. The right hand 
is equal to authority. Now those are the symbols in Revelation, of whose meaning I believe we can be fairly sure. But there are others where we can't be so sure of them. And it's the way in which these symbols are sometimes used in Revelation. It's their context, if you like. These things can make Revelation, shall we say, a challenging book to understand. But still, I want to say the fact that we can understand a number and many of the symbols that are used in Revelation, that does begin to open this book up for us. However, there is another, there is a scaled up way in which I believe understanding the symbolic nature of revelation can help us to open the book up. And that is the style of this book. Its heavy use of symbolism, the fact that it uses allegorical, pictorial language, all of this, I believe, makes revelation a book that needs to be handled, a book that needs to be interpreted differently, to say the narrative or the direct teaching parts of the Bible. For you see, sometimes people say that we've got to understand all of the Bible literally. That said, well, if that means according to the style in which it was written, according to the author's original purpose, if that's what that means, then I am in agreement. But if that means instead interpreting something woodenly, interpreting it without imagination, without trying to grasp and understand the symbolism and without understanding that with God there is mystery and that there are things that are beyond our understanding, then that, I'm afraid, I can't agree with. So you see, I don't see Revelation as some kind of chronic chronological guide that takes us through a whole series of events that must happen one after the other until finally we arrive at the second coming of Christ, the end of time as we know it now, and the new Jerusalem. No, because while Christ will return, and while there will be, I know, a new Jerusalem, there will be a new heaven and earth, yet I believe what Revelation describes is the repeated pattern of events that will occur time after time from the point when Revelation was written and again and again be repeated. For first, before everything else, you know, Revelation was written into a particular historical context that was being faced right then by the New Testament church and it was written in part to help them to deal with it. But it's this pattern, I believe, we've got to see. This pattern of increasing evil, persecution, tyranny and chaos coming time and time again, but with Christ victorious in the midst. It's this pattern, I believe, that runs through Revelation, that is there to be seen throughout human history, and that I believe will build up to a climax just before the second coming of Christ. With, for example, the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of, of Christ on us, something that I've said is a, a big issue for many Christians. I've mentioned that. You know, you've got your 
premillennials who think Christ's second coming will be before the establishing of this kingdom. You've got post-millennialists who believe that Christ will return after this thousand years of an age marked by peace and justice and the restraint of evil on earth. You've got all these things. But you see, my view, which was actually the view of the reformers, and which I believe fits in with the symbolism of revelation, with the style of revelation as a piece of literature, and also, I believe, with the wider teaching of the Bible. My view is that the, the millennium, rather than being a fixed period of a thousand years, is a symbolic number for a long period of time. So, for example, in Revelation 20, where the teaching on the millennium is to be found, it talks in, in verse 2 and 3, it talks of Satan being bound for a thousand years so that he could not deceive the nations anymore. What well, I say to you, don't we find a parallel to this? In Jesus' image of the binding of the strong man in Mark 3.27. Something that clearly refers to the overcoming of Satan by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Something that was demonstrated in his exorcism. And now you see, as we said earlier, now Satan can deceive the nations no more. He cannot because his dominating power, his overwhelming power, is now broken. He still has power, and he will have power until Christ returns. But he is now defeated. Christ is the victor. And in Christ, by faith in Christ, there is now available to mankind, men and women throughout the world, there is the power that will enable us to share in his victory, to live in his victory. And then in Revelation 27, where it talks of the second death and of the devil, a few verses later on, being taken and thrown into the fiery lake for all eternity. It, it seems to me that the best way to read that is a, a symbolic, a coded reference to the events that will follow the second coming of Jesus Christ. So to sum it all up, my view is and I know there are others who think otherwise, which I understand. But my view is that the millennium is the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. That period when in Christ, the kingdom of God in a new way broke into our world. And a period now of over 2,000 years rather than one. With the book of Revelation setting out for us in allegorical, in pictorial language, what the pattern of human existence will be in this period. And that is a repeated pattern throughout history of evil, of tyranny, of persecution and chaos, but with Christ victorious in the midst. With Christ restraining evil, Christ again and again delivering mankind from the worst of evil and then again and again rescuing his people throughout history. Okay, we've looked at its nature, its symbolism. We'll continue just to try to lay a foundation that will enable us to understand Revelation better by moving on to look at its context. Because, you see, as well as being relevant, as well as having a message for the church throughout the ages, 
as well as, as being related to the end times, to that climax of human history, as well as this, as we've touched on, Revelation was also a letter written to a particular group of churches at a particular point in their history. And that is the churches that were in the Roman province of Asia. And that, by the way, covered a fair bit of Greece and, and much of modern-day Turkey. And though there are seven messages in this book to particular churches, I think what we've got to remember again is what I've already said about the importance of symbolism with seven in fact, being the symbol for God and for completeness. And when we understand that, then it becomes clear that what this actually was, this book of Revelation, was a circular letter that was to be taken all around all the churches in that province that we know were considerably more than seven. And we're told here that an angel came to John. Then that as a result of this encounter with this angel... John was then led to share what we now call Revelation. There's a little bit of debate as to just who, what this angel was. You know, whether this is a way of speaking of a man, a messenger, sent from the churches in Asia. Sent by them to make John aware, this apostle of Christ, now exiled to Patmos because of his evangelistic activity, to make John aware of the growing problems faced by their church. And so to seek counsel, to seek advice from the most respected leader in the church with revelation, inspired by God being the result. Or whether alternatively, what happened is actually what it says at face value. That John had an encounter with an angelic, heavenly being. With John then being inspired by this encounter, to write this letter that spoke into the situation then faced by these Asian churches. But that, as we've said, then had reverberations that, that reach out far beyond their situation that speak to us even today. Now, both these options have got their strength, but the second seems to me to, to fit in better with the, the way angels are referred to through the rest of Revelation. But what were the circumstances faced by these churches that led John to write this book. Well, first, there was, I believe, Jewish hostility. The fact that there is reference to the synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 certainly hints at that. Because although Jews themselves were disliked in the Roman Empire, and though the wrath of Rome had fallen upon them in the past, yet they were at the same time well known and they were tolerated and because of that on the payment of a tax they were actually exempt from pagan worship and particularly from worship of the emperor but you see Christians didn't enjoy that kind of immunity and so it would seem that, that some among the Jewish community took great pleasure in singling Christians out and pointing out where churches were meeting and pointing out their failure, their disobedience to worship as Rome demanded. And this brought Christians, this brought the church on course for a crash collision with the Roman Empire. And this was then heightened by the second problem the Asian church faced. And that is Caesar worship. Now I've just 
touched on this, but this was actually a far greater problem and pressure upon the Asian church than for anywhere else in the empire. Because worship of the emperor as a divine being had started in Asia. And it would seem that Asia continued to be at the very center of, of emperor worship. There's archaeological, archaeological evidence of a great temple raised for the emperor Domitian in one of the great cities, main cities in Asia, with an eight-meter statue of him standing right beside it. Massive statue. And a contemporary writer, a writer at the time, Suetonius, he reports that this Domitian, this emperor, had demanded that he be called Lord and God. They see John, inspired by God, he sees what all of this is leading to. He sees that intense persecution is now on its way, and he wants the church to be ready for that. He wants them to be prepared that they might be able to stand under even more to glorify God, even as the weight of persecution rests heavily upon them. That sense, you know, that, that something terrible is on its way runs through Revelation. And that though, humanly speaking, Rome is the source of it, yet that ultimately, even Rome are instruments wielded by another, a greater hand. Revelation 1.3 says, the time is near. Revelation 2.10 says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. 3.10, the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world. In Revelation 12.12, 12, woe to the world. The devil has come down to you. And this is why I believe throughout Revelation, but especially in chapters 12 to 22 of Revelation, why John parodies there. It's a brave thing to do, but he does it. He parodies the false claims of Rome in comparison to the true claims of Jesus Christ. Climaxing in this, in Revelation 22, by focusing there on the true servants of God. Those who refuse to worship the beast. That is the Roman emperor, the symbol of this world's power at that time. And who instead worship God, the true God, worship the Lamb, and who have his name stamped upon them. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and have his name on their forehead. And John, you see, writes this letter here because he wants the church of Asia. He wants those that he writes to, he wants them to be found among those true servants of God and the Lamb. He doesn't want them to bow down to. He doesn't want them to compromise. He doesn't want them to be forced on their knees before the beast that is Rome with its ultimate satanic master. But there is a, another problem, though, these churches faced that gives John's appeal added urgency, and that is false teaching. False teaching, the fact that, that some of these churches had been infiltrated by, that they'd been weakened by false teaching. There's references 
in Revelation to the churches at Ephesus and Pergamum being troubled by a group called the Nicolaitans of Pergamum and Tyre respectively being influenced by the teachings of Balaam and by a prophetess who John calls Jezebel. Now exactly what these, these people taught we can't be precisely sure of. They knew what they were teaching, John knew but we don't exactly know. But what we do know is that faced by these threats all around them, with the prospect of persecution looming just ahead of them, that John was concerned to get these Christians, to get these churches back to the basic truths of the faith, back to that strong and true foundation. So that when persecution came, that they might be able to stand strong and to be found among those who glorify God and the Lamb. This is what Revelation, I think, is about. It's about alerting God's danger, God's people, to the dangers they face in this world, now and throughout history. It's about reminding them to make sure that their foundations are right. To make sure that they're holding to the truths of the faith. In order that as God's people, no matter what our point in history, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what opposition we might face, that we might stand and testify to the glory of God and live for his glory. That we might live in his victory, looking forward to his coming, when that victory will be made known to all. This is what revelation is about. And I believe it's a message we need as much today as at any other point in the history of the church. Let's just come to God in prayer. Father, we cannot know all that the future holds. We cannot know the challenges that we might face individually or as a church at the point we are in history and the culture we're a part of. We cannot know all that is to come. But what we do know is that you call your people again and again to look at themselves and to make sure that their foundations are right. To make sure that we are soundly based on your word. To make sure that we're looking to you, seeking your spirit, that we may be able to live for your glory, no matter what comes our way. Lord, may we be found among those who are ready to worship God, whose desire is to worship the Lamb, and who will not be shaken from that. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.